This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. I'm Catherine Klein. I'm the Vice Dean for Social Impact here at the Wharton School, and I'm really delighted today to be interviewing Billy Shore. Billy Shore is the uh, executive chairman of No Kid Hungry and its parent organization, Share Our Strength. Billy and his sister, Debbie, co-founded the organization 34 years ago, and in that time, they have raised over $600 million to fight hunger and food insecurity and poverty in the United States. So, Billy, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to have you with us. So, um, my guess is that some of the people who are going to be reading and listening to this interview don't spend a little a lot of time thinking about hunger, poverty, food insecurity in the United States. They may vaguely have some sense of the nature of these problems. Um, but help us understand what is the problem of hunger in the United States? What is the problem of food insecurity? What's hunger? What's food insecurity? Well, hunger in the United States, I'll start with hunger because hunger and food insecurity are actually pretty different. But hunger in the United States um, affects various populations, but the most vulnerable and the least responsible for the situation that they're in are, are children. Um, and we've got millions of kids in the country, about one in six, who um, suffer or struggle with hunger in some way or with food insecurity. I guess the, the most important thing to understand about hunger in the U.S., is that it's a solvable problem. You know, and I wouldn't have to give you a single fact or statistic for you to know that um, kids here aren't hungry for the reasons the kids around the rest of the world are hungry. It's not war or famine or mm -hmm. drought. Um, kids are hungry here because, um, not because we don't have food, not because we don't have food programs like the food stamp program or school breakfast, school lunch, uh, but because we haven't done a good job of connecting them. So hunger is solvable, food insecure, and hunger is kind of a physiological issue. Are you getting three meals a day? Are you getting the proper nutrition? Are you getting what your body, the calories and the, 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 the protein that your body needs to grow? Food insecurity is a measure that comes from surveying people and asking a whole series of questions that are more socioeconomic in nature. Mm -hmm. Do you make enough money to feel like you can buy your family the best foods? Do you ever have anxiety that you're not going to be able to feed your children as well as you'd like to? So there are a lot of families and children in food who live in food insecurity but who may not actually be experience hunger. They're both important, but in, in a triage sense, you want to make sure that kids at a minimum are not hungry, that they're not missing meals and having all the, the uh, negative effects that come with that. Right, right. And I suppose a, the question may be obvious, or the answer may be obvious, but why focus on kids? Why not focus on families, communities? Well, for a couple reasons. So when Share Our Strength started, uh, as you mentioned, 34 years ago, we were focusing on hunger in Ethiopia. We were focusing on hunger all across the United States, seniors, families. And um, one of the things that we thought about was how do we actually not just um, alleviate the problem or ameliorate it, but how do we actually solve it? Or is there some piece of what we're doing mm -hmm. that we could solve? Uh, there's a writer named Jonathan Kozel who says that you should pick battles that are big enough to matter but small enough to win. Right. Um, and I love that construct because there's so many things that all of us care about. Um, and you know, when you think about what's big enough to matter but small enough to win, maybe we can't solve Syria or the Middle East or climate change or I mean, gun violence. Your organization can't do all of those, but can't we do, do all hope of those that things. some yeah. organizations can. But right. when it comes to kids who are in this country who are hungry, that is big enough to matter, but small enough to win, and, it, and it's solvable. Mm -hmm. And as I, as I mentioned a moment ago, kids are the most vulnerable. The consequences of being hungry when you're a child developmentally can last you the rest of your life. 
and they're the least responsible for the situation they're in. They're, they're kind of born into it. Mm-hmm. So uh, we thought that that was the, a, a winnable issue, and we've actually made tremendous progress against it. Um, if you ask me this question five or six or seven years from now, I'm pretty sure we'll say that we've still got poverty, we've still got food insecurity, and we've still got hunger, but we don't have hungry kids in the United States. Great. So I want to explore that more with you. But but first, you've written and talked about how you made a significant shift in Share Our Strength uh, about 10 years ago. So talk with us about what made you make an organizational pivot. What was that pivot? How did you know it was time to make one? Yep. Let's start there. Yeah. Well, Share Our Strength was a grant maker to probably 300 to 400 other Nonprofits around the country. So you were, we, you all were raising money and passing it, and yeah. Know, and I'd say for the first it. for the first twenty years of our existence, what most people knew about us, if they knew anything, was that we had this very entrepreneurial way of generating revenues. We didn't have any government money or foundation money or high donor program or direct mail. Mm-hmm. We basically made money. We organized chefs and restaurateurs to do events for us, corporate marketing partnerships, cause-related marketing. Uh, we t- Even today, we have contracts with dozens of corporate partners mm-hmm. uh, that fund our organization. It puts us in the position of not competing with brother and sister organizations and uh, not having any strings attached to the mm-hmm. dollars so we can spend them as strategically as we wish. So we were raising the, that money, bringing new money into the into the field, granting it out. Mm-hmm. It was satisfying to almost everybody except for a handful of us at the center of the organization who were asking ourselves, you know, in effect, is the glass half empty or half full? Are we moving the needle? Are we solving the problem? Or are we just putting a Band-Aid on it? And so we realized that we really needed to put kind of a stake in the ground. We needed to, in this Jonathan Kozel sense of what's big enough to matter but small enough to win, mm-hmm. could we pick an area and hold ourselves accountable to actually solving it? And uh, again, in that case, it felt like childhood hunger would be uh, the, the, the place to do that. It required a big culture shift on the part of the organization. All of a sudden, we weren't just the good guys giving out money to others. We were accountable to achieving a very specific outcome. Mm-hmm, and people mm-hmm. felt that pressure, and it's it's a very different feeling. So it's interesting because one way I could interpret what you're saying is you made a decision to focus your efforts. But it sounds like it's – and I think many organizations do that. They say, oh, we're, you know, we're too broad. We're, our messaging is too unfocused. We need to focus. sounds like you're saying this was a change that was, yes, about focusing, but it was more than that. Yeah, I, I think that's a, um, a really interesting distinction you're making because it was about focusing on accountability, and the accountability mm-hmm. piece was so important for us. In one sense, it's kind of absurd that one little nonprofit organization would say, we're accountable for ending childhood hunger. Yeah. Um, we're just one of many organizations. The government plays a much bigger role than we do. But one of the things that we observed in the space that we were working in is there was a real dynamic of almost everybody pointing the finger at somebody else. Mm-hmm. So advocates in Washington would get legislation passed and then the governors wouldn't implement it the way they should or the local organizations wouldn't. And everybody else was saying, I did my job, it's somebody else's fault. And so we thought in a just kind of the classic, the buck stops here sense, somebody's got to raise their hand and say, we'll be responsible for getting this done until it's done. So as I say, in one sense, a little bit audacious, but in the other sense, mm-hmm. it gave our stakeholders um, a real um, palpable sense of we can judge where these guys are against their goal in a, in a world where you don't know if you're getting a better return on mm-hmm. investment by giving money to Habitat for Humanity or Teach for America or City Year or Share Our Strength. Here's at least an organization that's saying 
we're, we welcome you. We invite you to judge us. Here's here's our goal, and here's how far we are right. from it. And right. some years we came closer, and some years we didn't come as close as we said we would. And and this has energized your your donors, your partners, I gather. I think so. I think yeah. in a very big way, it had a really catalytic impact mm-hmm. on them. Again, just kind of the confidence that we would succeed, and the notion that. Uh, this is not something we're going to be asking them to support forever. There is an end point. Mm-hmm. There's a, I think the, the um, consulting firm Bridgespan calls it an arrival point. You yeah. know, there is an arrival yeah. point that you'll achieve and you'll know that you can then go on and climb the next higher right. hill. Right. So with the No Kid Hungry campaign, really capturing that with those, those three words, No Kid Hungry, uh, you shifted the focus and said we're going to end childhood hunger. How? What is what is Share Our Strength? What does the No Kid Hungry well, campaign do to end hunger? So we defined ending hunger as making sure kids had three meals a day. Mm-hmm. Um, usually at least uh, whether parents are poor or mm-hmm. food insecure or what have you, they're probably able to afford at least one meal for their mm-hmm. kids. They may not be able to afford three. Um, but low-income kids in this country get a free or reduced-priced school lunch. That's a program that was set up in 1946 when generals and admirals returned from World War II and they said to Congress, our recruits by the end of the year were not strong enough um, and they weren't fit enough, so we need to start feeding kids in school better. Then they added the school breakfast program in 1964. So we've got today 22 million kids in the country who qualify for a free or reduced price lunch. All 22 million are eligible for breakfast as well, but when we looked at this eight years ago, only 9 million of the 22 million were getting it, so less than 50%. But the crazy thing, Catherine, is that it's bought and paid for for all 22 million. So try to think about another issue that we work on in this country where there's a pot of money, literally billions of dollars, sitting in Washington that can only be used for this. Wow. And yet and less than half of them are being used. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was the opportunity to start enrolling kids. And we've done that with breakfast and we've done it with summer meals and other programs but as well. But you're not a government agency. <coughs> so you're not a government agency saying, hey, school district, put in this program, or hey, you know, whatever, whatever the place is to deliver those kids breakfast. So what do you yeah. actually do? So what we're, what we're doing is we're going into school districts and we're saying there's this program available. If you want to participate in it, there may be some things you need in terms of startup costs that mm-hmm. we will pay. You might need uh, insulated carts on wheels. You might need to redo your cafeteria. You might need to hire more cafeteria workers. Mm-hmm. Um, but we will pay for that if you do what you need to do to enroll in the federal government school breakfast program. The meals are 100% federally reimbursed. So you can go to any governor in the country mm-hmm. and say, Governor, did you realize that you've left $150 million or whatever the number is right. uh, in Washington? And no matter how conservative or how liberal they are, they all say, what do I have to do to get it? That's so interesting. That's so interesting. So uh, you made this shift in around 2010. You said you've, you're making good progress on the, the metrics yeah. you count. Um, so tell us about that progress. Well, we've added about 3.2 million kids to the school breakfast program. Of the 22 million kids who get lunch, not all 22 million of them should get breakfast because some will have breakfast at home with mm-hmm. mom and dad or grandparents or whatever, and that's great. Yep. Uh, but the right number is probably about 15 or 16 million, and today we're at about 12 and a half, closer to, to 13. Mm-hmm. So adding 3 million kids to a school breakfast program over just five or six years has been a really an enormous task. And we did it in one very simple way. So I described this program started you know, 50 years ago. It's always run the same way forever with almost no changes. And somebody said, what if we moved breakfast from the cafeteria 
mm-hmm. where kids have to get there early, and many yeah. of them can't because the bus driver's schedule or mom and dad's schedule or what have you. And then there's the stigma attached to being the kids who get to school early. What if we move breakfast from the cafeteria to the first 10 minutes of first period? Every, so when you propose that, two things happen. One is everybody you possibly think of, can think of objects to that idea. Yeah, right, <laughs> right? right. The teachers, teachers don't want yes, food yes, in the yes. classroom, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the other thing happens is participation rates go to almost 95%. Mm-hmm. And after sometimes as short as a week, the teachers embrace it and they say, oh, now I see why this is a good thing. Of the 3.2 million kids that we've added, which is across thousands of schools, nobody's ever gone back to the old wow. way. That's nobody's ever said, oh, I wish we were doing it in the cafeteria again. It's just, it just works too well. But it's change. Yeah. Change is, you know, is uncomfortable for people. Right. So having made this, this, this shift and pursued this change in strategy for 10 years, What's the advice that you would give to other organizations, whether it's a for-profit or a non-profit, that may be thinking, you know, we're not doing as well as we could. We're not having the impact, whether it's social impact, whether it's financial performance. We're not where we should be. We need to focus, hold ourselves accountable. I'd I'd say there's three or four things that apply to, I think, many efforts, not just our work in hunger and food security. One is what I put under the umbrella of kind of go big or go home, to have a big goal. you know, put a stake in the ground, stand behind it, yeah. have a goal that's, you know, big enough to inspire people. Uh, the second is to be willing to build your own capacity uh, and to make the assertion mm-hmm. that building your capacity will lead to impact. In the nonprofit world, as you know, um, everybody wants to know what your overhead costs right. are and how right. much you pay in salaries, and they want you to put as much money out into the community as you possibly can. And that's great, and for the most noble of reasons, but if you don't have professional staff, if you don't train them well, if you don't retain them, then you're really wasting donors' money. So building your own capacity is key. This accountability issue, which we both mentioned, Mm -hmm. I think is also, you know, a very important Mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I'd say what we came to late, later than we should have, was this notion that public policy has to play a very important role. That non, there, there are very few problems that nonprofits can solve on their own. Mm -hmm. There are things they can do in terms of innovating and taking risks. But when it comes to scaling up a good idea that they've created or that they've yeah. advanced, you're going to need public support. And do you think that, that there are other sectors, other problems where there is, you know, as you put it, money left on the table, where the public where the public policy exists but isn't being implemented, you know, as effectively as it could and should be? Well, I think, yeah, I think there are a lot of places where um, the advocates work so hard to get a policy to become law that once it does, they're on to the next thing and that nobody really looks back. So I had this interesting conversation with Marion Wright Edelman from the Mm -hmm. Children's Defense Fund, who's this iconic leader, you know, in this space. And we were talking about, you know, what battles we should be fighting. And uh, we're going around the table and she said, well, uh, I think we should pay attention to what Share Our Strength is doing because we won these, we fought and won these battles 40 years ago. So and before we go fight the next ones, let's make sure that what we won actually happens and comes to pass. There's a little bit of this in the uh, healthcare and the child health space mm-hmm. in particular. Mm-hmm. There's states that don't fully utilize yeah. the child health yeah. insurance program. Um, but there's lots of, you know, in terms of just performance and executional issues separate from money, there's a lot of improvement that could be made across the board in terms right. of different policies. Right. Yeah, right. It makes sense. I mean, think of all the benefits that, that do exist but that are difficult for people to access. Yeah. Interesting. So one of, a big part of your model has been this partnering with corporations. 
So I'd love to hear more about you know, what corporations give you, what these businesses are giving you, what they get from it. And then I'd like to kind of talk more expansively about the role of business in fighting hunger and, and yeah. f food insecurity. Well, we've thought from the beginning that there's a really big role for the business community and that there's a role for nonprofits to think about not just redistributing wealth, but actually creating wealth. You don't think of nonprofits being in the business of, of, of creating wealth or generating revenues, but um, there's no reason they shouldn't. Um, I, I have a friend who always says that nonprofit should be a tax status, not your management philosophy, right? right? right. You, yes. you want to make money and use it for the, the things that you do. And so we, we had this notion early on and, and we, part of it we understood, part of it we stumbled into, mm -hmm. frankly, but we, as we started to organize chefs and restaurateurs to get involved in the hunger issue, since they made their livelihoods from food, we thought they would feel connected to the issue of hunger. Uh, as we started to do that, companies that marketed into the chef and restaurant industry that had something to sell them mm -hmm. were coming to us saying, you're, you're a more efficient marketer than we are. You've got 500 of the chefs that we want to be carrying our product. How about instead of us going to 500 of them one at a time, we strike up a partnership with Share Our Strength. Mm -hmm. So Citibank is a good example. They want uh, chefs and restaurateurs to use a Visa card instead of an American Express card. And they want to go into the restaurant and have a conversation a little bit different than here's the point spread on our mm -hmm. card yeah, and yeah. the fees. They want to go in and say, hey, you and I, are we're both partners with Share Our Strength. Mm -hmm. uh, why don't we do this? Like, why don't we have a partnership together? Um, William Sonoma, Fiji Water, Ilya Espresso, um, lots of companies have realized that there are some benefits to doing that. And then I think there's also the important issue of just because they're human beings like you and me, they want to be doing something meaningful. Yeah. They want to be having an impact. And some of them get involved for kind of marketing reasons, mm -hmm. but then stay involved because they find it really fulfilling to uh, be able to offer their employees this opportunity to, to have a big difference. And so we often hear about engagement and you know, social impact engagement by corporations for all those reasons, right? You know, uh, through philanthropy, for marketing, for engagement, for reputation, and even a, a, a real belief in the social issues. Is there, you know, as you think about the next 10 years, you've been quite visionary about this, is there, you know, as this conversation changes about the role of business and this notion that businesses should pay more attention to social issues, business can and should have a social impact, and it should be part of the social, well, the, the, the mission of the organization and the business model. So not necessarily philanthropy or marketing, but this is actually core to our business. Right. Do you have thoughts on that in, in this space? Yeah, I think, well, I think it's related to what's going on in social media and mm -hmm. the pressures it creates on business. So you and I are having this conversation on the day that uh, Dick's, the sporting goods store, announced that they're no longer going to uh, stock the AR-15, right. right? So there's been this, you know, terrible uh, incident in, in Parkland, Florida, and uh, gun safety has now risen to the top. And we've seen just in the last 10 days, dozens of companies start to change their relationship right. with the National Rifle Association yeah. because yeah. they believe it's important for their business. It's probably something that they've, you know, wanted to do perhaps anyhow, but maybe didn't have the courage or didn't right. realize it aligned with business reasons. So yeah, I think I think business leaders are going to play a, a larger and larger role. And in, certainly in our case, if we've got the CEO of a, of a company uh, that can write a letter to the governor, um, the CEO of Deloitte did a mm -hmm. press conference with us uh, in which he said, this was at the time, a man named um, Joe uh, Echeverrius, 
Um, and he said, you know, we hire 30,000 young people a year. So we've got to make sure that we've got a pool of young people who are healthy and fit mm -hmm. and fed and do well in school. And that's the reason we're so supportive of the school breakfast uh, work. So you have the, all of a sudden the lens shifts from kind of this anti-poverty advocate, yeah. me, to this very respected business leader saying this is good for the economy. So, yeah, I think business will play more of a role. Right, right. It's interesting. Interesting challenges for CEOs yeah. as they start to have this larger and a public role. Uh, so great. Well, if and if uh, if somebody wants to learn more about uh, food insecurity, hunger, volunteer, make a difference, uh, you know, resources for people to pursue. Yeah, we've got a lot of them. Um, so our, our our best link to our website is nokidhungry.org. But we've also got there a Center for Best Practices that talks about all of the ways the communities around the country are working on these issues of hunger and food insecurity and poverty. Uh, we've got a list of all the events that people can volunteer at or donate to. Great. But yeah, nokidhungry.org is the place to go. Perfect. Great. Well, Billy Shore, thanks so much for talking with me. Great to, great to hear all about your continuing good work at Share Our Strength. Thanks. Thanks. thanks Thank Kevin. you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.